Welcome to the ABR podcast. My name is Dylan Gunwardner, and I'm the deputy editor of Australian Book Review. Each year, ABR publishes an issue devoted to questions of sustainability, climate change, and the environment. This annual themed issue is supported by Eucalypt Australia, and we acknowledge their generous support. The highlight of each environment issue is the ABR Eucalypt Fellowship. The Eucalypt Fellow receives $7,500 to write a long essay on some aspect of the Eucalypt. The 2017 Eucalypt Fellow was Stephen Orr. His essay is titled Ambassadors from Another Time, and it appears in the October 2017 issue of Australian Book Review. Stephen Orr studied ecology at university before starting to write fiction. He has taught biology, agriculture and English. His interests include novels about science and our often difficult relationship with the natural world. His 2015 novel, The Hands, describes a farming family trying to scratch a living from drought-affected grazing country. His most recent novel, Batson Land, published this year, was reviewed by Catherine Noski in the June-July 2017 issue of Australian Book Review. Now it gives me much pleasure to introduce Stephen Orr, reading his essay, Ambassadors from Another Time. First, I need to visit Dean Nicole's Eucalypt Arboretum. 400 rows of trees, four specimens of each species of Eucalyptus, Corymbia and Angophora, the Eucalypts, nestled together, sharing pollen and landscape, dropping limbs in the grass. Each group of trees is a result of the previous year's fieldwork. The year 2000 was big. Nicole, this keeper of the keys to the Eucalypts, spent six months in Western Australia collecting seed. Before my visit to the Arboretum, there is a more personal detour to the adjacent Currency Creek Cemetery. Here, my great-great-great-grandfather and mother asleep in the arms of God since 1901. Section, General, Niche, 123, Permit, Lease, 357. It takes half an hour to find them, but here they are, under an old blue gum, Eucalyptus leucoxylon, their headstone replaced with a small block of concrete and a plaque giving them some sort of identity. As we search the rows, four white gums collected from the Mallee, Eucalyptus gracilis from the west of Blythe, content to sit with family on this hillside so far from home. Forgotten, perhaps, but then again, I had never got around to visiting Andrew Darling or, I apologise for taking so long. Arriving in South Australia from Glasgow in 1867, Andrew settled in nearby Gorwa, building wooden boats, and his wife, Catherine. What can I know about her? Accepting some who-do-you-think-you-are experience, something like accompanying Dean up and down the rows from Box to Ironbark, lemon-scented to River Reds, from Cape York to Hobart. Is there some sort of key to understanding eucalypts? Dean has started making his own, a way of appreciating the subtle differences between the more than 900 eucalypts on his property. Here, Eucalyptus braxicalix, another mallee, growing up to the coastal fringe of the Nullarbor Plain, Multi stem, pith glands, shiny leaves, and flattened bud claps. But you have to know the differences, and how can you unless your head's full of a hundred fruit shapes, reniform cotyledons, lancelot leaves? Easier to imagine Andrew at work, planing, corking, up and down the rows until one is overcome by a sort of guilty monotony. So, what is this tree that holds a sort of magical sway? As a kid, the grey green blur you drove past on your way from one city or town to another an unfortunate mess ripe for clearing. 
as it always has been, pioneers rolling stone-filled drums across the Mallee, clearing skeletal soils for sheep and wheat. Patrick White's Australian everyman, Stan Parker, arriving in the bush, driving between two big stringy barks and stopping, the horse shagged and stolid as the tree, the animal taking root in an unpromising landscape, the man, no different to the tree, striking the eucalypt with an axe. It was the first time anything like this had happened in that part of the bush, but not the last. 200 years of clear felling, Peregian Springs on Queensland's Sunshine Coast, the usual line about hinterland, unspoiled beaches and nearby national park, but progress always has a price, in this case, the clearing of five hectares of old-growth scribbly gum, Eucalyptus racemosa forest. Thirty homes and commercial developments, although Sunshine Coast Environment Council, SCEC spokesman, Narelle McCarthy explains that the community are not going to stand by and watch vegetation that is wildlife habitat destroyed. Developer Forrester Kurtz Properties, FKP, seems to understand that development work like land clearing can be difficult for the local community, a difficulty that we still struggle with today. Dean Nicole's Currency Creek Arboretum is a result of a lifetime's interest in eucalypts. On gentle slopes overlooking the Coorong, more than 900 species, 8,000 plants, move in the breeze off the Southern Ocean. A mix of eucalyptus, more than 800 types, corymbia, 90 types, and angophora, or the apples, so named for their similarity to apple trees. Angophora, with true petals and both eucalypt and corymbia favouring hardy bud caps, Angophora, with its leaves arranged opposite each other along the branch, but eucalyptus and corymbia mostly favouring alternate leaves. Looking out on this sea of gums, it becomes apparent that the devil's in the detail. The minor variations of habit and bark, from the chaos of a ribbon gum to the messages of the scribbly gum, smooth, mottled, granular, each evoking a distinctive landscape or memory. The boxes, the stringy barks, the bloodwoods, a sort of mappa mundi of Australian landscapes, both physical and cultural. The high country and tropical species struggling with Currency Creek's cold mornings. The blue gums from Tasmania and South Australia. The smell of lemon, all crowded onto a vellum map that, it seems, would take a lifetime to understand. We walk past paddocks full of grazing sheep and cattle. The remnant red gums, Eucalyptus camaldulensis, along the dry creeks. A scattering of pink gums, eucalyptus fasciculosa, and lonely blue gums, eucalyptus leucoxylin. When Dean's father, a retired commercial grower of Cymbidium orchids, realised his son's passion for the genus, he decided the teenager couldn't keep planting gum trees in the family garden. To him, plants were money. To his son, they were a life's work. I try to fathom this devotion. Dean isn't sure himself. Starting here with the Yates, a group of eucalypts from southwest Western Australia, Eucalyptus macrandra, the river or long flowering Yate, a four to ten metre tall mallee with smooth bark varying from grey green to copper or orange. It's elongated bud caps revealing splice coloured flowers on hot summer days. Not to be confused with the Stirling Range Yate, slightly shorter with pale grey bark, the same long horn shaped bud caps, and similar yellow green flowers in winter and spring. I become a budget Sherlock, trawling the undergrowth for an understanding of what makes subseries Cornutae different from subseries Liberae, and that's before we start on the bushy yates and their various subspecies. Eucalyptus megacornuta, with its long warty bud caps used by generations of Western Australian kids to scare their younger siblings, 
chasing them around backyards with these tumorous witch fingers, pulling off the bud caps to reveal little green shaving brushes. Eucalyptus cornuta, 8 to 20 metres high, tallest and grandest of the Yates, a hardwood favoured back in the day by wheelwrights. Sweet nectar for honey, a fast-growing specimen used for coastal shelter. First described by French biologist Jacques Labaladier, 1755 to 1834. Born into a large, poor Catholic family, he studied medicine at the University of Montpellier, then moved to Paris and spent his days in the Jardin du Roy. Thence to London, where Labaladier met Joseph Banks. He refined his study of exotic plants before returning to Paris and signing on to an expedition to the Near East. In 1791, the now well-respected botanist set sail for Australia as naturalist on the Bruni de Entrecasteaux expedition, stopping at southwest Australia, Tasmania and New Zealand. He assembled a large collection of botanical samples, which were then confiscated by the British upon the expedition's arrival in Java. Luckily, Banks helped secure the return of this material after Labaladier's return to France. The right of the captors to the collection should be on this occasion waived and that the whole should be returned to Monsieur de Billardier. The material was returned and eventually described in two volume Nova Hollandais Plantarum Specimen, 1804 to 6. Le book with its 256 black and white images was a definitive text on Australian flora until Robert Brown's Prodromus, 1810, a book that sold so poorly it was withdrawn from sale. But it was Labaladier wandering the forests around Tasmania's Recherche Bay in April 1792 and January 1793, who first described species as diverse as Tasmanian blue gum, Eucalyptus globulus, and the carnivorous Cephalotus follicularis, as well as a range of bryophytes. He even defined new genera such as Calytrix, with his excellent grasp of Latin, the universal descriptor of plants. Labaladier married language with science, as W.G. Sebald said. Scientists very frequently write better than novelists, and so I tend to read scientists by preference. For family history from now till then, names, reading in the shadow of the past, our provenance set out precisely for any idiot to understand. Andrew Darling Orr begets John, begets William, down through the years, as botanist Ferdinand von Mueller sets to work, and following him, Richard Baker, Joseph Maiden, through to Dean Nicole. Either way, only a few generations back to Marianne, my gran, lost in her own key of time, fog on the bleak hills of Currency Creek, and all I have is a reference someone wrote for her in 1932. Miss M. Dawes has been in my employment for the last four years. She is an excellent cook, smart and efficient. The wisdom of plants was always there. Benedictine Abbots Hildegard, 1098-1179, favoured lavender oil for lice and rheumy eyes. Sitting in her mate's monastery, composing madrigals, studying science and medicine, burning lavender sprigs to ward off evil spirits. At the same time, Aboriginal people were using eucalyptus infusions for sinus congestion, pain and colds. White sails in the sunset and ship surgeon Dennis Considen starts distilling oil from Sydney peppermint, eucalyptus piperita, only a few weeks after the first fleet's arrival in 1788. A few years later, colonists are using basic stills to make their own oil, Soon, von Mueller convinces Joseph Bassisto to set up a commercial distillery just outside Melbourne. Bassisto sees this as a great opportunity for his Richmond pharmacy. In 1854, he starts producing oil from the narrow-leaved peppermint, Eucalyptus radiata. 
1882, with investors Alfred Felton and Frederick Grimwade, he establishes the Eucalyptus Mallee Company and builds Australia's biggest distillery at Dimbola. He pays local unemployed and Indigenous men to cut branches and haul them in carts to the still. The vegetation is steamed in still vats, separated from the water, bottled and sent off for domestic and overseas use. Persisto works tirelessly promoting the oil until his death in 1898, making it the accepted Victorian treatment for rheumatism, sprains, wounds, coughs, colds and C. Beware of imitations. Generations of Victorians knew Dr Persisto's dispensing advice from his Melbourne shop, always pushing his favourite lines, syrup of red gum, having a mucoliginous astringency that renders it effectual in all affectations of the mucous membrane of the stomach and bowels, inducing a feeling of repose and tranquility. Not that he was some sort of confidence man. Boz was a frilly-shirted late Victorian man of science. There was some basic knowledge of eucalyptus oil composition in the 1870s, most notably from French chemist F.S. Cloez studying Tasmanian blue gum, eucalyptus camalgulensis in newly laid out European plantations. Cloez isolated eulyptol, cineol, and later at the beginning of the 20th century, several Australian chemists identified the oil content of different species. Persisto believed eucalypts were a fever-destroying tree. The oil was popular with everyone from prime ministers to the street kids of Jollymont and West Richmond, whom Persisto represented as a member of the Victorian Legislative Assembly. Perhaps he truly believed eucalyptus oil could make a tubercular bacillus or influenza virus die at its opening day. Australia, for half a century after Persisto's death, was the world's biggest eucalyptus oil exporter. Then, with the establishment of overseas eucalypt plantations, this declined. Now, Brazil and China dominate the world market. But Persisto's continues, courting an overprescribed world, even selling floor cleaners, all the time promising a cleaner, healthier life without harmful chemicals. The smell lingers our most powerful connection with the past. The olfactory bowl running along the base of the brain, rubbing up against the amygdala and hippocampus. Emotion and memory stores for the years, the decades we've left behind. Andrew Scholl, media consultant and husband of Nikki Gemmel, described why the couple felt the need to return home from London. And then there was the call of Australia, the call to come back home. Nikki would wake up in the middle of the night desperately homesick for the, the smell of eucalyptus, deadly seriously. South Australian writer Barbara Hanrahan, living in London, remembered her childhood in Adelaide, the streets of Mile End, the eucalypts shedding bark beside the Wheat Sheaf Hotel. Recording these memories in her classic The Scent of Eucalyptus, 1973. Although eucalypts are barely mentioned, more the memory, the smell, the sound of lancelot leaves rustling on a shingle beach. When she is sent on a youth camp to Mount Lofty, she finds an empty box and decides to fill it with beautiful things. She did, in her London bedsit, reconstructing a life. My jewels were toadstools, an empty snail shell, ivy leaves that looked like stars, pebbles that were cool against my cheek, some wattle gum leaves with holes, a feather. My jewel case became a garden. The landscape morphing from summer night's dream to Mallee, a castle at Springton, 60 kilometres northeast of Adelaide, the story of a man who lived in the hollowed-out base of an old river red, Eucalyptus camalgulensis. Johann Friedrich Herberg found it amenable until he married Anna in 1858. After the birth of their second son, they decided enough was enough and Johann built a hut. By 1867, Friedrich had paid off his land, finished the hut and fathered another four children. By 1885, there were 16 in all and the river red prospered. 
six metres of floor space, 20 metres tall and up to 500 years old, kept as a sort of family souvenir, still visited today by thousands. Similar trees have been home to Indigenous Australians for tens of thousands of years, natural or burned out cavities, or the use of vegetation from eucalypts to make gundis or temporary dwellings, in contrast to more permanent type structures built elsewhere, such as the volcanic stone dwellings of the Gunjimare people in southwest Victoria. Our understanding of the eucalypts coincides with our grasp of this continent, an 18th and 19th century take on morphology, cells, reproductive and evolutionary strategies, leading to the work of Darwin and Lamarck and beyond. Anton von Leeuwenhoek grinding 550 lenses to inflate the microscopic world to 270 times its actual size, allowing Robert Hooke to describe the bodies of hairy fleas, leading to a scientific obsession with seeing, knowing, understanding an unknown planet of small things, as French, Dutch and English ships replaced micro with macroscopic journeys across the Pacific and Indian Oceans. This astounding polymath, Hooke, artist, watchmaker, technician, surveyor of post-Great Fire London, describing all of this in his famous Micrographia, 1665. Cork, too, with its cells, these small units of life that would reveal their secrets over the next century. This leads to a room in the British Museum in the 1770s, where seconded French botanist Charles-Louis Le Haretier de Brutel sat examining a specimen forwarded by the botanist on James Cook's third expedition to Britain's latest land acquisition. David Nelson had collected the specimen, Eucalyptus oblica, on Bruny Island, and now de Brutel was examining its distinctive bud shape, a perculum, seemingly in place to protect the plant's reproductive parts from a harsh environment, only shedding under pressure from the developing stamens. The flower bud seemed well covered, eucalyptus, and a genus was born. Soon after, as the first fleet were pitching their tents at Botany Bay, de Brutel published his description of Eucalyptus obliqua in London. None of this would have been possible without the gradual accumulation of information that began with Theophrastus 300 years before the Christian millennia. This remarkably scientific description of plants, their growth structures, reproductive strategies, all gathered in the nine-volume Historia Plantarum. Theophrastus kept refining his work up until his death, devoting his life to the subtleties of leaf margins, anthers and filaments, as well as the uses plants had in what passed as medicine. Here, in the first volume, he describes the differences between trees, shrubs and perennials and observes that some trees, silver fir for instance, have leaves that are always opposite each other on the branch, while others are irregular. In 1797, the English botanist James Edward Smith describes the Sydney bluegum Eucalyptus saligna with its alternate leaf arrangement. In 1922, Joseph Maiden described the disjunct leaf arrangement of the Port Lincoln Mallee, Eucalyptus conglobata, first classified by the 19th century's premier botanist, George Bentham. Throughout, a language and legacy of detail accumulate like scale, describing and refining each detail of the hundreds of eucalypts. A proliferation of keys, books, coffee table and scholarly, essays and field guides to a plant that has continued to colonise the world, in the 1850s, for example, the fast-growing eucalyptus globulus was taken to the Californian goldfields by Australian prospectors and planted as a source of wood for mines, fuel, housing. In the following decades, it was laid out in plantations to provide wood for the growing railway network. In a letter to the Pacific Rural Press from September 1900, a reader asks, Will it do to plant eucalypt trees in the Santa Cruz Mountains on sandy hills between Glenwood and Felton? 
I wish the trees for fuel and for the sake of the landscape as well. The editor explains, as we had never seen any eucalypt in that region, we appealed for information to Mr. E.F. Adams of Wrights, an old resident and a close observer. He writes that he does not remember seeing a eucalyptus in the Santa Cruz hills, but he can see no reason why they should not grow on the sandy hills. This unfussy expatriate, putting down roots in some of the world's worst soils. This iconic plant. But what does that mean? More adapted to Australian conditions? Our tree? The bush that surrounds and consumes individuals in Australian storytelling? A young Eileen Joyce, Susan Parrott, skipping through the scrub in the 1951 film Wherever She Goes? Here, one of Australia's most successful pianists is a 10-year-old drawing inspiration from the rosellas in nearby gum trees, coming across a bushy, playing his harmonica as the hills, bleached blue by a microclimate of Basisto's eucalyptus oil, provides the backdrop for this prodigy's early wanderings in music. Eucalypts are highly adapted to Australian conditions. Their tough, inedible leaves closing stomata as they hang low in the afternoon sun, shedding leaves and bark in summer, dropping deep roots in search of water, making do with the scant minerals in so many of our skeletal soils. Once, the poor cousin to rainforest species that covered much of the continent, later, adapting to the drying effects of early climate change to become the dominant species in most Australian forests, woodlands and scrub. Then the storms, lightning, fires that affected other genera. The eucalypts responded with thick bark to protect their heartwood, the stimulation of leaf buds, epicormic tumours sprouting weeks after fires or seeds deep in the ash beds stirring to life. One eucalypt becoming many, dozens, hundreds, over millions of years of adaptive radiation, as a new climate produced the Ordea Mallee, Eucalyptus Jungiana, colonising dunes and swales with its proliferation of stems, thick leaves, bark falling away in ribbons, its pyramidal seeds burrowing into the sand. Or, not so far away, the mountain ash, Eucalyptus regnans, one of the tallest trees in the world, often growing to more than 90 metres, taking advantage of a high rainfall forests, living for hundreds of years until a fire comes along, stretching its enormous arms to create rainforest understory. Or perhaps the most adapted and common eucalypt of them all, the river red, Eucalyptus camaldulensis. The thirstiest, most versatile, best known, each shade of its cream-brown trunk is reimagined in a hundred Hans Heysen paintings, osmotically sucking from flooded creeks but winding down its droughty metabolism. This marble of reproduction, making up to 250 million seeds per hectare per year, waiting for insects to help pollinate, adapted to a wide range of conditions, drinking through its trunk if needed, sending up roots for air during floods, growing up to 30 metres during its five, six, seven hundred year lifespan. Some specimens are thought to be closer to a thousand years old. This marvel of adaptation with its termite-resistant wood, making it a target for colonial home builders and sleeper cutters, provides habitat for hundreds of insects, birds, mammals, such as the sugar glider, and reptiles like the carpet python. The 66,000 hectare Barmaroa Millawa Forest in Victoria's Murray Valley National Park is the largest stand of river reds in Australia. Here, the tree flourishes, taking advantage of artificial watering events that see between three and 400 gigalitres of water released onto the Millawa floodplain in alternate years, replicating natural flows. Allowing the trees to flourish, the growth of native moira grass around the floodplains and creeks, the spawning of Murray cod and golden silver perch, as well as providing habitat for colonial water birds, such as the straw-necked ibis and royal spoonbill, 
traditional Aboriginal Yorta Yorta country spotted with scar trees, reminding us of the tens of thousands of years this country provided manna for Aboriginal people living around the lakes and creeks, hunting, gathering food, still sleeping in the wetlands beside pre-Christian middens. is at the centre of this well-managed system, but it's not always like this. In 2011, Adelaide's Cohen Group announced the $100 million redevelopment of Burnside Village Shopping Centre. The centre, full of high-end brand names such as Chanel and Oriton, promised great things, more retail space and a cafe dining area fully enclosed with glass. Problem being, the 100-year-old River Red in what was to become the hippest meeting place for Adelaide's sass and beard set. Many warned of the tree's demise, but the Cohen Group insisted they had thought of everything. The canopy was built, including a louvered section around the tree to let in wind and rain. On opening day, the Camalgalensis seemed happy enough. Within a year, it had turned brown all over. An August 2013 article in the Eastern Courier Messenger explained, As the death knell sounded on Adelaide's most talked about tree, no one was really surprised. Some claimed the Cohens had always known that a river red couldn't survive in a giant coffee-fume-filled glasshouse. No intermittent flooding here, or insects, or anything, really. Quote, when the tree's health began to visibly decline last year, 2012, there were phone calls from arborists, glass manufacturers, and even a tree whisperer, who explained she had been to visit the tree, and it had confided in her it was dying. When the controversy ramped up in 2013, the Cohen Group hired a public relations firm to sort it out. The family matriarch, Pat Cohen, flew in national experts who gave the tree regular nutrient injections. By July, Cohen had to concede that the tree was in fact dead. After it was removed, the centre manager explained that the River Red spirit would live on. Some of the wood was auctioned for charity, some was given to local wood turners and sculptors, one of whom made wooden bowls incorporating the shopping centre's logo. Local artist Dominic Rischioli was commissioned to make benches and sculptures for the centre from the wood, Waste Not, Want Not, despite the critics saying that Cappuccino was always going to triumph over Kamal Jolensis. Basically, the tree was air-conditioned to death. The missing system and UV lighting the Coens had installed did nothing to slow or arrest the inevitable. If any good did come from this five-year fiasco, it was an understanding of values and how trees are still seen in some places as a liability. Fire, too, is a constant in the Australian landscape. The last million years has seen our continent warm and dry, the decline of lush forests in favour of grasslands and deserts. Botanically, the survivors were the best at adapting. Paperbark, Melaleuca, for instance, re-sprouting from epicormic buds protected by thick bark doubling as a starch store for the new growth. Or the Gondwana proteas with their deep underground stems covered in dormant buds, triggered by the hot, intense fires of the old Gondwanaland forests. But mostly eucalypts, a group that has not only learned to deal with fire but to use it. Here, the blue-leafed mallee, Eucalyptus cyanophylla, shedding its rusty bark in strips and ribbons. 
This low nutrient forest trash waiting for fire, flaring up, promoting a short, intense heat that fails to damage the hardwood, sending out flares to replicate this effect across the mallee. Or a different approach, the mesonate stringy bark, Eucalyptus oblique, with its thick fibrous insulation protecting the tree from fire. This tall forest specimen stretching skywards in search of light, raising its vegetation from the fire-prone forest floor. Eucalypts with reserve leaf buds biochemically triggered by the heat of fires, or, towards the base of trees, lignotubers waiting to re-sprout. Mostly, the eucalypt leaf with its volatile oil catching, flaring, but burning quickly to avoid damage to the tree. Or the release of seed triggered by fire in species such as mountain ash, Eucalyptus regnans. Here, a towering forest specimen with no insulating bark, lignotubers or epicormic buds, making it vulnerable to fire. Instead, a few days after fire, millions of seeds drop into the still warm ash, settling and waiting for winter rain, harvesting light from the naked canopy, germination, hopeful roots and stems. 20 years later, maturity, seed set and perhaps 500 years of growth as the cycle repeats. Unless, as on the fringes of Australia's capital cities, we do our best to prevent fires. The morning of 16 August 1983, hot again after a dry, roasting summer, and in South Australia, low humidity, strong 100km northerlies, and later, a dust storm. It was well above 40 degrees when I rode home from school. The wind held me back, the fan-forced oven on my face, dirt in my mouth, the Adelaide Hills alight. The first fire of the day had already been burning for four hours, starting the McLaren flat, but multiplying exponentially through the afternoon. The same thing happening in Victoria on this, the Christian celebration of Ash Wednesday. Charted on fire maps, the deep reds of mid and high 40 temperatures showing the chain of events unfolding. 110 fires, eight major fronts burning across two states, and later, a southwesterly wind change that provided new fuel loads, whipped up firestorms and trapped some of the 28 South Australians and 47 Victorians, who died in cars, on farms, on roads, trying to escape. So much vegetation and smoke stopping any chance of organising an effective response. On Yarrabee Road in the Adelaide foothills, Adelaide journalist Murray Nicholl watched his house burn. Trapped by the flames, he broadcast a description. We are in deep trouble. We can't see any houses. Green Hill Road is just wiped out. There are dozens of people here with me. We can hardly breathe. Things are white with heat and smoke. There are women crying and there are children here. A burned-out CFS truck was left in our schoolyard a few weeks later. Someone had died in it, apparently, and we needed to remember. A familiar trope to most Australians, Victoria's catastrophic Black Thursday fire of 1851 reads like some sort of prequel to 1983, and the even more devastating Black Saturday bushfires of 2009, in which 173 people died. As each event is given a religious handle, as though men and women, horses and dogs, face some purgatorial trial, emerging cleansed as a subject for art, perhaps. Such as Black Thursday, February 6, 1851, by William Strutt, the first in a long line of Australian landscape painters who have dealt with the drama of fire. Strutt's painting is a muddled, apocalyptic vision in tones of gravy brown and red, portraying a blaze that devastated a quarter of Victoria. The same combination of extreme heat, northerlies, low humidity, high fuel loads, the tail end of a prolonged drought. Or Russell Drysdale's 1944 painting, Bushfire, an entirely new take on landscapes stripped of romantic associations. The burnt ochre and yellow of the remains of a homestead silhouetted against a bleached sky. 
Here, the feeling that the bush wasn't worth all the effort. As Geoffrey Dutton explained in 1960, Drysdale saw it all and recorded it with an honesty unattempted by the writers who wanted to stir sympathy or indignation. Australian bushfires occur less frequently now than in any time over the last 10,000 years. In a way, our 19th century turneresque take on fire and the bold headlines of 1980s newspapers ignores the reality of the Australian bush. Stephen Pine called eucalypts an occupier of disturbed environment, a fire creature, like the wandu, eucalyptus wandu, relying on ash beds to germinate seed, or regnans casting its lot with the wildfires that used to burn forests with far greater frequency than today. The gum tree is culture. 28 December 1836, Governor John Hindmarsh and South Australia's first settlers came ashore at Glenelg, seeking shade beneath a red gum, eucalyptus camaldulensis, as Hindmarsh called upon the colonists to conduct themselves on all occasion with order and quietness. As the country was explored and Robert O'Hara Burke and John Wills stumbled along the north bank of the Cooper's Creek, finding no consolation in the words carved in the flesh of a coolabar, eucalyptus coolabar. B. Alex V. Trunk Creekside, Dig, 3 feet, N.W. Trunk, Landside, December 6, 60, April 21, 61, Lim Upstream. 30 years later, under a ghost gum, Carimbia Aparingia, outside the Barkline Railway Station, striking shearers blockaded the arrival of scab labour from the south, followed on 9 September 1892 by the reading of the Manifesto of the Queensland, later Australian Labour Party, in the shade of what would become known as the Tree of Knowledge. It didn't end well for this, the most important political tree in Australia. A vandal injected glyphosate into its trunk in 2006. The Australian Labour Party offered $10,000 for information about the culprit. A similar fate to South Australia's old gum tree encased in concrete after its death in 1963. But the dig tree is going strong. On the subject of political trees, here is Singapore's Prime Minister, Lee Sing Lung, standing in front of a gum tree during, to quote Long, the golden hour in Adelaide sunset in June 2017, taking a photo, his shadow included, after a week's holiday in the hills and posting the image to his 1.17 million followers on Facebook. The long shadows, the grand old gum, forming a backdrop to Lung's political problems. Long leads Singapore's People's Action Party, founded by his father, Lee Kuan Yew, in 1959, a wealthy family, so when Long's two siblings, Lee Sang-Yang and Lee Wee-Ling, wanted to demolish the family home for a major redevelopment, Long blocked them. They accused Long of abusing his powers against their father's dying wishes. The feud became increasingly personal until, according to Adelaide journalist Tom Richardson, LHL took the extraordinary step of apologising to the city-state citizens for the embarrassment the bitter public feud has caused, vowing to clear his name in a speech to the legislature this week at which government MPs will be granted a rare free vote. All this nastiness softened by a picture of a gum tree. The Facebook post attracted 17,000 likes and 1,000 comments along the lines of, hope you push on from this unfortunate episode, LKY trusted you, we trusted him, now we also trust you. The gum tree is a symbol, a carrier of Australian values. Even in 1967, as filming began for a new children's television series, Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. Thousands of suburban Aussie kids sitting in their Mr Sheen smelling brick and fibro houses as Australian every boy, Sonny Hammond, Gary Pankhurst, nightly set off on adventures through the fictional Waratah National Park, Duffy's Forest north of Sydney, in search of rogue criminals. 
Sonny and one of his dozen kangaroos set free in Kurungai Chase National Park, the smell of scribbly gums, eucalyptus hemostoma, and Sydney peppermint, eucalyptus piperita, strong in the air, as developers cleared more of the same for the Australian dream. Robin Boyd, in The Australian Ugliness, 1960, had warned that trees weren't ornamental additions to suburban gardens nestled between the letterbox and concrete Aborigine. On the other hand, he wrote, the bush atmosphere is prized chauvinistically by people who would not dream of going beyond the suburbs except in the Jaguar, explaining that gum trees here are probably too plentiful to command any respect, and the job of clearing is considered as inevitable for a home builder now as it was last century for a farmer. Australians were aborophobes, he said, noting that the Housing Commission in Perth was once persuaded by a tree lover group to spare some of the native bush in an outer suburban subdivision. The commission agreed to leave two gums in each front garden, but six months after the estate was opened, every tree had been removed by the occupiers. None of this in Waratah National Park. Sonny picks up a leaf from a stringy bark, as we all attempted, inspired by the 1970 reruns, and whistles across the canopy of narrow-leafed apple, Angophora bakeri. Although now this ridgetop woodland too has gone the way of what Boyd called our Austerican dreams. The suburbs creeping north, the home of Skippy sign rotting in the leaf litter, the ranger headquarters where Sonny received his nightly lecture from his father, locked up and forgotten, a few curious visitors peering in the acres of glass that keep the weather, although hardly the years, at bay. Unfortunately, gum trees look too, well, Australian. One exception Boyd related was the West Australian flowering gum, Corymbia ficifolia, that had managed to avoid the worst of the eucalypts, scrappy canopy and messy bark. This showed that white Australia, quote, has nothing against gum trees on racial grounds. It is simply unfortunate that so few of them are neat enough in their habits to be accepted. Watch as the eucalypts head for Australia, over what is now the Philippines where Eucalyptus deglupta can still be found on Mindanoa, New Guinea, adapting to a range of landscapes and climates on this journey south. Evolving smaller, tougher leaves set close to avoid water loss, hard bark, deep roots, and proof in the genetics of New Caledonia's Aralastrum, a monotypic genus of the family Matasi, with similar features to Angophora and Corymbia. Small genetic changes over tens of millions of years the least successful variants dying out in calcareous or saline landscapes, burnt brown by hot summers or their seeds washed away in seasonal floods. It's all in the genetics. The University of Tasmania's Dr. Rebecca Jones is a regular visitor to Dean Nicole's Arboretum. Her research has involved using molecular genetic markers to determine if eucalypt populations are, quote, at risk of extinction due to inbreeding and loss of genetic diversity, as well as gauging the extent of clonality in, especially, Malayucalypse. Conservation genetics. According to Jones, quote, a field of research that uses genetic techniques to gain information about populations and species. This is then used to formulate management strategies for the conservation and restoration of biodiversity, allowing us to understand questions such as the, quote, genetic basis of variation in resistance to myrtle rust, which has recently arrived in Australia. Jones explains that her research at the University of Tasmania concentrates on restoration and conservation genetics, evolution and speciation, genome architecture and eucalypt breeding for pulpwood, timber and bioenergy. Global demand for eucalypt oil is around 7,000 tonnes a year, of which Australia supplies only 5%. 
Beyond the world of medicine and cosmetics, research into a hydrocarbon component of eucalyptus oil, terpenes, promises a new industrial application. A 2012 paper showed that a catalytic process can convert terpenes into renewable, high-density fuels. According to the study's author, quote, the fuels produced by this process have net heats of combustion ranging from 137,000 to 142,000 BTU per gallon, which are comparable to the tactile missile fuel, JP-10. In the near future, terpenes found in eucalypts, primarily pinene and limonene, could be refined to adequate energy densities to combine with standard aviation fuels. Terpenine 4-OL could also be used to reduce graphene, a two-dimensional carbon grid 100 times stronger than steel. According to scientists David Kainer and Carsten Kulheim, quote, a square metre of graphene can support the weight of a house cat but weighs less than one of its whiskers. Jones explains, there are so many research areas that need attention. We are only beginning to capitalise on the 2014 release of the Eucalyptus grandis genome, and so this is an exciting area in eucalyptus genomic research. She believes that if speciation, divergence and the distinctiveness of populations are understood, the management and use of eucalypts can be improved. For example, quote, the genetic basis of wood properties to help transform the forest industry from a pole wood focus to producing solid wood products, e.g. sawn timber and veneer composites, or using adaptation genetics to understand, quote, the selection of germplasm for ecological restoration and industrial plantings that will be resistant to rapid environmental change over the next century. Genetics explains the success of eucalypts in the Australian landscape. Mysteries remain, however. For example, the yellow bloodwood or rusty jacket, Corymbia peltata, grows cheek by jowl with a lemon-scented gum, Corymbia citridora. The former with its fibrous yellow-brown bark, the latter smooth and shedding, pale blue to brown, bleached like a Drysdale sky, prompting the question, why so different in similar habitats? Jones explains, for example, the differentiation between two closely related Tasmanian eucalypts, Eucalyptus tenuramus and Eucalyptus risdonii, may be the product of relatively recent changes in developmental timing. These closely related sister species are weakly differentiated genetically, but are strikingly differentiated for developmental traits. Eucalyptus tenuramus, like most other eucalypts, flowers in the adult leaf phase, while the rare taxon Eucalyptus risdonii rarely produces adult leaves and instead flowers while in the juvenile leaf phase. As we drive around his currency creek arboretum, Dean Nicole explains that eucalypts have, quote, different strategies to cope with something, and that's about all we can say with certainty. Beyond that, it's all theories and hypotheses. Eucalypts responded in different ways to the same environment. Under any environment, you generally have two or three different eucalypt species growing together, but they have different features. As we explore these hills and valleys, hundreds of eucalypts growing limb to limb, related only by the time and place they were collected. Off in the distance, a few remnant red gums growing beside a creek. Pink gums, eucalyptus fasciculosa, struggling on a hillside cleared for crops. A few South Australian blue gums, eucalyptus leucoxlin, providing shade for sheep and cattle. Nicole, from a young age, was fascinated by this singular tree. Growing up around his parents' Cymbidium nursery, devouring books such as Ivan Holiday's A Gardener's Guide to Eucalypts, 1980. Years later, this modern Noah, growing four of each species in uniform conditions, exploring the world of form. Barks, mini richie, mottled, granular and smooth, the peppermints, the boxes, the ironwoods and bloodwoods, 
sparsely and densely reticulated leaves and even the way oil glands bustle for room in the sun. All of these details and variations laid out in keys that take amateur botanists down paths that lead nowhere, the direction's too confusing. Family trees turning in on themselves, a subject of academic discussion to go on and on. I just try and keep out of that, Nicole explains. The bloodwoods migrating from eucalyptus to corymbia as recently as 1995, to the displeasure of some. Something like Jorge Borges is The Garden of Forking Paths, a story about a novel about a world in which all possible outcomes occur simultaneously, creating a profusion of possibilities, only a few of which will ever connect. The protagonist, Yu Sun, explaining that, quote, I thought of a maze which would take in both past and future and would somehow involve the stars. That is, temporal, not spatial. Not this profusion of rose in the Currency Creek Cemetery, my ancestors hidden in the long grass of time. No one from my family had ever visited. Or similar rows of eucalypts from the southwest coast of Western Australia, transplanted to this cold cattle country, struggling to grow beyond their limits. The thought returns. People are no more than the sum of their genetics. Andrew and Catherine moving from Renfrewshire to put down roots in this Currency Creek soil to build boats and bake bread, to daily make one of two choices again and again that would lead to Roe H plot 5Y. When Carl Linnaeus published his Species Plantarum in 1753, a new order was brought to the naming of plants. Binomial nomenclature assigned a four and surname to the what Linnaeus believed were 10,000 types of plants growing under God's careful watch. Now we know there are closer to 400,000 species of flowering plants alone, but as Linnaeus explained, the first step in wisdom is to know the things themselves. And what Linnaeus began in the name of God, dumbstruck before the kingdom of the Creator, Jean-Jacques Rousseau continued in the name of reason. There he is now, 12 years after Linnaeus's first edition of Plantarum, sitting in the window of his small hotel on La Ile Saint-Pierre, exiled again for speaking his mind. He was addicted to thought, ideas, order, and tried to placate the urge by rote copying of musical notation. When this didn't work, he, quote, set out to compose a flora patrinculares and to describe every single plant on the island in enough detail to keep me busy for the rest of my days. They say a German once wrote a book about a lemon peel. I could have written one about every grass in the meadows. Max Abald later explained that it wasn't so much about the plants as the quote, ordering, classification and creation of a perfect system. A perfect system. Is that what botanists, artists and illustrators of eucalypts long for? A complete, definitive take on the genus? Ararat engine driver Stan Kelly, 1911 to 2001, published his first book, Australian Eucalypts in Colour, in 1949. The unassuming amateur artist started small, but set himself the challenge of painting all of the eucalypts. Travelling the country, like Nicole, Jones and a hundred others, searching for the next undiscovered specimen, slowing his train, handing a troll to the fireman, jumping off and grabbing a specimen he would spend the weekend painting in his bedroom, developing a range of greens to best describe each species, meticulously observing leaf arrangement and venation, fruit shapes, flower colour, a tie and a tidy cardigan, telling his grandchildren the eucalypt was Australia's greatest asset and finest ambassador throughout the world. His work, especially his Eucalypts of Australia, volumes one and two, is still admired and consulted for its detail, its precision. Kelly was not the only one. An eight-year-old May Gibbs riding through the Western Australian bush on her pony, 
stopping, sitting on a log, sketching some early version of Little Ragged Blossom, or a 20-year-old Hans Heysen studying art in Paris, still smelling the big river reds around Harndorf on hot summer days. This tree somehow part of the way he understood, as a seven-year-old from Germany, what it meant to be Australian. Later saying, quote, The gum tree's main appeal to me has been its combination of mightiness and delicacy, mightiness in its strength of limb and delicate in the colour of its covering. To most Australians, the gum tree is just there, lining creeks and highways. Like the Casno tree, a lone red gum standing near Wapilna Pound in the Flinders Ranges, perhaps the most memorable image by photographer Harold Casno. The 1937 photograph is slightly washed out. There doesn't seem much hope. The few drought-dead branches, the orange soil, the rotted fence posts of early graziers. But it's there still today. Casno called it spirit of endurance. One day, when the sun shone hot and strong, I stood before this giant in silent wonder and admiration. The hot wind stirred its leafy boughs, and some of the living elements of this tree passed to me in understanding and in friendliness. Maybe we don't get gum trees because we don't get Australia. The American novelist John Steinbeck knew why. No one has ever successfully painted or photographed a redwood tree, he said. The feeling they produce is not transferable. From them come silence and awe. It's not only their unbelievable stature, nor the colour which seems to shift and vary under your eyes. No, they are not like any trees we know. They are ambassadors from another time. This essay appeared in the October 2017 issue of Australian Book Review. To purchase a copy of the print edition, please visit the subscribe section of our website, www.australianbookreview.com.au. It also appears in our digital edition, ABR Online. Subscriptions to ABR cost as little as $10. Music featured in this podcast comes from the 2017 album, The Double, by David McCooey. You can listen to and download the double on Spotify. For more ABR podcasts, visit the podcast section of our website. Thanks for listening.